0: Good day, and once again, welcome back to the podcast. It's Tuesday, 8th of October, 1946. If you're feeling relaxed and refreshed, that's because it's the day after the Labor Day October long weekend in Bet's hometown of Sydney, New South Wales. In the Sydney Morning Herald today, front page stories include Holiday Over, the biggest number of holiday trains for six years was needed to bring holiday makers home last night. There were big crowds at the Australian Jockey Club Randwick meeting on Saturday and betting investments were a record. 6,000 marched in the annual six-hour day procession. The Athens government has decided to arm civilians in areas subject to communist attacks. Big betting raids... Mobile squads arrested 105 men in betting raids in the south coast towns of Kiama, Wollongong, Coromel and Thoreau. South Florida was preparing early this morning for a tropical hurricane estimated to begin at 3.30pm. Washington estimates that this year's world wheat crop will be 12% greater than in 1945 and will ease the threat of famine in Europe. And sadly... In Amsterdam, eight boys were killed and ten injured today when a Dutch military plane crashed onto a school and set fire to the building. Many children rushed out with their clothes burning. The mother of the pilot, who was watching her son fly low over her house, collapsed and died when the plane struck the school. And Sydney weather today. The forecast is for fine, mild day temperatures and a cold night. Morning harbor fog, light to moderate southwesterly to southeasterly winds, and a slight seas. But now it's time to hear from Bet, who has a tale of a fire.
1: Mrs. Betty Souter, Unra Regional Office, Nanchang, Jiangxi, eighth of October, nineteen forty-six. My dear family and friends, why should I choose this morning to write to you? Goodness only knows. There are lots of little men sitting on the top of my head, kicking at my forehead with their heels. Why, oh why, do we do these things? And yet, I think that we had some good reason last night because... But I should start at the beginning of the story. It all began with a little charcoal fire in Kay’s bedroom the night before last. We had had a cold, dreary day and decided to see whether the fireplaces were real or only for appearance sake. A small charcoal, only available fuel, fire, was set up therefore, in Kay’s room and in ours, both upstairs, on opposite sides of the hall, at the very front of the house. We enjoyed the glowing embers and found the fireplaces quite satisfactorily. Though still glowing a little in the centre, the fires were practically out when we went to bed. In the morning, the usual pile of ashes remained in both grates, dreary and dull, and we told the Amar to clean it out quickly. Breakfast yesterday morning was a quiet affair. Monday-itis, I suppose. In the midst of the quietness, came a-pounding down the stairs, accompanied by excited garble from one of the houseboys. I really think that he imagined he had seen a ghost of one of his ancestors. A thin, wisp of smoke was curling upwards from the skirting board in the hall. Everyone upstairs, a few bricks removed from the wall, some buckets of water poured in, and that was the fire. Much excitement, in a few short moments... And then I went bike riding and thought no more about it. During the day, we sent the carpenter up every now and again to make sure that there was no more smoke coming out and we ourselves felt the heat of the wall every so often and decided that it was cooling off. Kay, the handyman around the place, said that we could keep an eye on it and that it was probably all right, but that the chimneys would have to be swept before we used them again. I was over in the other house, admiring Joan's new winter furnishings for her room, when I sensed some activity going on over here. So I came to have a look-see. Was confronted by the sight of Kay and Lush, with crowbars in hand, tearing a great hole in the wall, pulling out one brick after another, with a water pump standing by, the water being tossed into the wall after every other brick. Kung, the houseboy, was rushing up and down stairs. Still, I do not know what he was doing, and two of our really dilly Yankee women were standing by, giving directions and never letting up on their name chatter. As I entered the stage, so did Marge, and, by this time, the two boys were really sweating on the job. Leo hovered in the background and suggested that it was time for the fire brigade. Some demurred on the ground that the Chinese fire brigade would be more bother than it was worth, but Leo said, Bring them all in. Let's make this a good party. Marge and I were faced with the problem, how to collect the fire brigade, if any. I tried the telephone and thought to ask in my best Chinese for a Chinese man from Sunra, who has some sense and not too much temperament. But the telephone wouldn't work. It usually doesn't. Marge and I then set out to walk about a hundred yards along the street to the residence of another Chinese sunra man, who also has plenty of sense. Usually unusual asset. We took our office boy with us to do the talking to arouse FC, and by this time it was about ten PM. The boarding house went into a dither of excitement to see the two foreigners arrive and there was a great deal of chatter and bringing out the families to have a look at us before we could ascertain just where FC might be. We found his door and, of course, found that he was out. Another Sunra man, talking a little English, came into the circle of followers at this stage and asked what it was about. We explained that there was a fire in our house, whereupon he asked what part of the house, to which we replied, in the wall at the back of the fireplace, whereupon started a long theoretical discourse on the possibilities of getting a fire in one's wall, and uh, what a silly place it was to get a fire anyway, or that is what we gathered from the antics that went on. Marge and I forced away into the conversation every now and again, asking, where was the fire station? Did they have a fire station? Did they have a telephone? Would our friend please come and try to use our telephone, etc.? No use. But after wasting quite 15 minutes, in which time the house could have been in cinders, our friend thought that he had better come over and have a look. He looked, tried the telephone which he had obviously never used in his life before, and then agreed to accompany us to the police station, which is a couple of hundred yards down the street in the other direction. By now it was 10.30, and the hole in the wall was assuming quite large proportions. As Marge and I and the Chinese friend started off for the police station, the office boy must have thought things were getting serious, requiring action, so he made for the bicycle shed and planned, I suppose, a modern poor-revered ride. I might mention, at this stage, that we arrived at the station and had entered negotiations well and truly before he came hurtling in on his bike. At the police station, there was an armed sentry on guard, bayonet fixed and all. He did not question our entry, but just stood goggle-eyed with the bayonet drooping over his left shoulder and his mouth falling open. Three other policemen were sitting around, most informally on wooden benches, in the bare cold room. Our escort got all worked up at the thought of his mission, and before we knew it, out came rushing the captain of the guard with his gold buttons and all, doing up his belt and his pants as he came. He forgot his cap in the first wild rush, so made another wild rush back into the room, picked it up and, with a broad smile, made for the scene of action. He did not, it seems, give any orders, but just said, fire. As he hurried on foot along the street, a string of heterogeneous types hurried out after him and pattered gaily along. Our friend, meanwhile, was discoursing loud and long and giving an exhibition of how a fire can occur in a wall at the back of a fireplace. We interrupted, saying, What about tools, crowbars, something to open up the wall? Oh, yes, he said, tools and there followed a torrential outflow of chatter. Result? Half a dozen coolies, at the intervals of about three to five minutes, came loping out the back, carrying each a pair of wooden buckets on their idiot sticks. Round about this time, someone remembered that the alarm had not been given, that someone therefore walked across to a little whistle that was hanging on a string near the window, picked it up, and gave it a blow. Fire! Fire! the little boys in the front stalls at the Saturday matinee could individually produce a better effort. By this time, Marge and I were having fits. What if the house did burn down? No wonder the Chinese could not cope with the ravages of war. The whole row of houses in this street and three adjoining streets could have been in ashes by this time. We sauntered back home. On arrival, found the captain of the guard, his stooges, the bucket carriers, still with empty buckets, and the inane women still cluttering up the stairs. The same two persons, Lush and Kay, were still doing the work and the Chinese aides, realising that they could not do so well themselves and that we had no intention of giving them any commishaw, soon decided to clear out. I looked for Kung to clear some of the hot bricks out of the hallway. He had been busy as a beetle and most enthusiastic in his firefighting. I found him at the foot of the stairs, sound asleep. He had had it. After removing a few more bricks, creating a wonderful draft from the hallway through the now enlarged fireplace into Kay's room, we decided to call it a day and a night. It was after 11. The hacking into the wall had uncovered two burning crossbeams. When the house was built, The wooden beams were covered by less than two inches of Chinese cement, which is porous, all around the fireplace. We made our way to Leo's room for a little pick-me-up, where it was alleged that we should keep watch for a while, in case the smoke came up again. It was an excuse, but a rather poor one. Leo was all wound up, though, and full of amusement, so we just stayed on and on and got picked up further and further. It was a most amusing evening and rather an hilarious one. And this morning, I'm tired. That gets me back to where I started on page one. Perhaps before leaving the subject of fire, I should tell you that Lash, our inspector, recently made a trip to Kian to check the state of the go-downs, warehouses. He pointed out that the structures were largely made of wood and ordered that some firefighting equipment should be kept on hand. The Chinese man in charge of doings retorted with all seriousness, but that is not necessary. We have just arranged for insurance. (laughs) Quaint people. Must tell you of the latest setback in the instructional courses that we are giving to our houseboys for the improvement of their knowledge of the English language. You will realise that we have to be constantly on the alert against sabotage by some of the men on staff here think it is great fun to get the boys to say the wrong things. But the boys realise the wisdom of always checking with their instructors. This is an example. Kung came along to see me at the dinner table, while everyone was quiet over their coffee and, quite confidentially, said to me, Mrs. Su, you may teach her. Chinese we say ma ma fu fu, which means not so good, not so bad. Mr. Lushington, English, he say, Bloody awful, yes? It bored the house down, poor Kung. He tries so hard and so seriously with his English too. And Mr. Chow will say, Good nighty. seems to me that the little man with the big feet are getting more active on top of my head and the indications point to cessation of letter writing. I wouldn't mind a little snooze right now, but for decency's sake, I'd better wait for an hour or so. Cheers and beers, oh, never again. That is, not till the next fire. Never mind, though, because the position, to put it in a nutshell, or maybe a gambé cup, is hopeless but not serious. Goodbye for now. Bet. The arrows point to my Chinese name, Da, written by myself. Da is a Chinese word meaning sweetheart.
0: Production credits for this episode, produced and narrated by Warren Henry, the voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorn, and the featured tune from 1946, which was actually recorded in 1944, Hamp's Boogie Woogie, performed by Lionel Hampton and his orchestra.